Today's episode is the second half of a conversation we recently hosted on the subject of remote work. Recent reports suggest that many major companies that adopted remote work early in the pandemic have decided to stick with it. This will have a host of implications for where and how today's workforce and the workforce of the future operates. There are upsides to the trend, and there are undoubtedly challenges ahead. As I said last time, this conversation is based on a report AEI published late last year that you can find at AEI.org. If you're just tuning in, be sure to pick up the first half of the discussion in our previous episode. So last, but certainly not least, Christos, you've done some quantitative work in this area, and I wanted to get your perspective on both the report and what you've heard from the other panelists too. Definitely. And, and thank you again for the opportunity to participate in this. There's two main points that kind of come to mind when reading through the report. And I just want to really harp on what Laurel said earlier about we need to have the right reference point. You can't compare the worst remote work case to the best in-person case. You need to think about organizations at their best using this intentionality and then organizations at their worst could not have planning. And so regardless of what they do, you can give them a billion dollars and an organization without intentionality, without good culture still fail. So two of the main points that I want to delve into, first is on some of the productivity effects and thinking about productivity from a very holistic standpoint. So for example, when there isn't a corporate culture where people feel like they can communicate with one another, where they can share experiences with one another, where they're all running in a similar direction, that leads to less engagement, more distractions over the course of the day. People are sometimes looking for more distractions. And so that whittles away at that workday, such that even though they might have kind of like 12 hours that they're online, in terms of dedicated time that they're putting towards thinking about the problems that the organization faces, it might be closer to like four hours or so. And so I think thinking about productivity holistically is something that's really important and is just tough to do quantitatively because think about what researchers have access to. They might have, in the example of Raj Chudari, who was one of the authors on the USPTO study that you cited, and one of my co-authors, they have patents, but there's a broader metrics of productivity, the quality of patents. What about other sectors? Think about knowledge workers. How do you measure the quality of an idea? All those sort of factors. One of the exciting things I just want to mention really briefly on this productivity component is and that you mentioned in the report is about hybrid work. And so it's not about this either you are fully virtual or fully in-person, one of the projects that Raj and I are implementing in India with a large company is we actually randomize the use of going in-person and versus staying at home. And so for individuals, we can look at what about people that go in a lot? What about people that go in sometimes? And what about people that like don't really go in at all over the course of an entire month? And we actually found the greatest productivity effects for that hybrid, that middle case. We weren't finding an adverse effect of remote work or virtual work. We were just finding some of the greatest benefits kind of in that middle. And so organizations will all have to figure out where is that sweet spot? And that sweet spot will depend, as Nicole mentioned, on the values of the organization, on the mission, on like what it, what are the people actually doing? Do they have to go talk to one another or is it more independent work? The second point that I really wanted to touch, and I'll be more succinct on the second point, is how do you scale up very, very complicated work? And so As our economy becomes more and more digital and more and more digitally intensive, there are certain tasks that are 
easier done in person, but technology can still facilitate the coming together in a virtual environment. And so thinking about how you can use virtual reality to accelerate the learning process. So if one of the employees on the team doesn't know how to write a script in R that does certain data visualization, well, one, there probably will be a program that actually does that for free. But like, let's imagine there's not such a program. Like you might be able to put on like some VR goggles and 20 minutes, get a really good tutorial about how to do that. And one of my other faculty colleagues, David Lee at UC Santa Barbara, we're actually working on a project where we provide AI-based recommendations to employees such that you can kind of take a very complicated task, break it up into a bunch of different pieces, and then based on the, the different strengths on the team, give recommendations to people such that if, if you excel at this, then you give them kind of this, and then they're all working together in a harmonized fashion. And I didn't do the idea justice, but it's all just illustrative to say that technology can really facilitate the way that we farm out complicated work on a virtual team. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Brent, and just delighted to, to be here and honored to share the panel with Laurel and Nicole and, and Matt as well. Well, thanks, Christos. That's fascinating stuff. And one of the things that it says to me is that this is a huge management challenge. It's not just a challenge for workers, but a challenge for their managers to figure out and to really apply thoughtfully the tools at hand to help workers succeed in this environment. It isn't just go off and just keep doing what you're doing, but do it from home or do it remotely. It's like, how does that remote element shift the way that this work is going to get done? So I want to go back to you, Laurel. And first of all, I want you to just like carte blanche. If you've heard something that you want to react to from the other panels, please do that. But one of my thoughts throughout the last nine months has been are our fondest hopes being fulfilled? Are our worst fears coming true? Or is it something in between? I mean, if, to my mind, the worst fear for employers, as a matter of fact, has always been, we're going to lose control. We're going to lose control of our workforce. We won't be able to monitor them. We won't be, the work won't get done. And that's, I think, has been the primary sort of obstacle to employers being willing to engage in the idea of remote work prior to the pandemic. So that's my question for you. Worst fears, fondest hopes, where do we land on this? And then, of course, respond to the other panels if you've got something else you want to say. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, again, we need to you know, give that caveat. Well, are we asking that question socially or are we asking that question professionally? Because those are two very different things. As the report discusses, this really reveals a lot to us as a society that we say, wait a second, my workplace is my only source of social interaction. And wow, it turns out I really haven't been supporting my my personal relationships very well. And it just kind of held up a mirror to us in a lot of ways in our organizational cultures, like in our productivity and tracking of our employees, that we really are forced into this very uncomfortable position to evaluate what have we been doing and how much have we been hiding behind proximity. You know, proximity gives us this false sense of security about unification, about teamwork, about alignment, but are we truly doing those things? And, you know, our employees may be concerned and complaining about feeling lonely right now, but let's be honest, they were probably lonely before too. So we really, what remote work does is not that remote work by itself is completely different and foreign and unique, 
what it does is it really just creates this very, very clear, concise, transparent organizational model in which there really aren't any places to hide because you don't have that immediate access to each other. You have to improve the places that previously, historically, we've been hiding. So I think, Christos, let's go back to your example of productivity. Everybody assumes that productivity, that statistic about productivity increasing, which by the way, is like an average of 35 to 40% higher. I mean, it's a massive statistic. What we're assuming is that people are working more productively when they are remote, but that's not necessarily the case as we're experiencing now, right? Like a lot of us have dogs barking and children interrupting and, you know, we're burned out. Like it's not necessarily us that is more productive. It is the operational adjustments that we've had to make in our organization in order to accommodate remote work. So what that means is that we have stronger workflows. So in an office, you corral time and space, right? In a virtual office, you're corralling information. That's what keeps you all unified. So you have to be completely spot on about when is it my turn? When is it your turn? What does a handoff look like? What is the process start to finish? There's no room for observation. You have to articulate that. So workflows are stronger. You also are leveraging asynchronous communication because people are working across different time zones. So you're able to, in this new superpower way, multitask and be helping one person when they're on the other side of the world and you're sleeping, but also working during normal business hours. So we've got these workflows, we've got asynchronous communication, we've got empowerment of the employees that are able to work more autonomously. They are trained to be self-managers because they don't have a manager around. So they're just working more independently in general. And above all, we're measuring results. We're measuring productivity more accurately because we can't see our employees. We can't watch them. Activity is not a thing to us. We have to measure were you productive? And that's all based on results instead of are you in this building during these hours? Because of all of those components, that's what increases productivity. And those are all location irrelevant. Those can be helping a business increase productivity, whether their employees are distributed or they're all back in the office. Thanks, Laurel. And Nicole, I guess my question for you, because of your other research, is how should we think about remote work from the standpoint of social cohesion? Is this going to become just another way that Americans divide themselves between those who work remotely and those who don't have that opportunity kind of on the basis of the work that they do? And what do we do about that, if anything? I'm, I'm really curious about what your thoughts are. I want to say to people out there, like, don't get me wrong, I actually do like working remotely <laughs> because I don't want to actually have to drive to an office. And I find my productivity is very high as a researcher when I can get that time, as Laurel says, to sort of structure better my information flows and sort of do what I do as a technique, which is to cut off those times which I'm not available to be able to be engaged in other remote environments. I'm actually productive. <laughs> so I do want to speak for those of us who have found our productivity flows go up. But I think that's where the question is. It varies by industry, right? Because I'm in the think tank world. Our whole industry is not necessarily about making widgets, but it's about absorbing all of the things that are happening around us and making sense of it. And, you know, unfortunately, we lived in a crowded space before the pandemic and we still live in a crowded space. So I can give you in our particular department, our productivity just skyrocketed in terms of the type of content that's coming out and probably the same thing in AI, simply because of the nature of work. 
But in terms of social cohesion, I, I actually have to say, I think it's really interesting, right? Because one, first and foremost, Robert Putman said before the pandemic, way before a lot of things, that we were bowling alone anyway as a civil society. So it's not to say, as Laurel said, that we actually were in these gangs and tribes of folks prior to the pandemic. In many respects, many of us have found a way to actually leverage technology in its previous form to just stay by ourselves anyway. I mean, all you have to do is look at the metro going to work and nobody's talking to each other. We're all actually engaged in whatever digital vice that we have, whether it's a movie, music or something else. I think what's interesting, though, is the extent to which people have adopted actually new cultural norms because of the pandemic. And this, I think, is less related to the report and more related to the fact that people were still hungry for some type of affiliation or association. So I know that there are groups of women that do happy hours, you know, once a week just to check in with each other. My own personal family is now doing Zoom reunions where folks are actually getting together across the country who haven't seen each other for 10, 13 years. Those kinds of things have happened in ways that I think the pandemic dictated that. And it may actually question what Laurel has said, where some people are starting to now sort of reverse course on the fact that they have been disassociated from family members and friends, that they're using this opportunity to develop new cultural norms that I think if they find ways for us to go back to work, people are going to want to continue. I can't tell you how many people anecdotally are like, I've connected with folks that I've not seen for 13, 14, 15 years via a Zoom call, or we just started messaging each other simply because we have that time to do it. And we can't go to concerts and we can't go to movies. So what's the next best thing to do? Call up somebody you haven't talked to for 15 years and catch up. But the question becomes, and I think this is really the value of this conversation is, what does work mean in the United States? To what extent has work always looked like what it looks like remotely? To what extent do we have work really break up some of the social norms that really create the fullness of people when it comes to quality of life? We constantly hear people talk about self-care. You know, I think there's a lot of that going on. There's not only the pandemic that has affected the way we work, but there are people who are sitting down at Christmas who have an empty seat, as President Lake Biden says, because someone has been affected by self. Personally, we've lost four people. Those kinds of things also happened in this pandemic that to a certain extent, Brent, to your question, it could have reversed the trend and made us much more polarized. And of course, we see that based on our affinity groups and our ideological preferences. But I would suggest in certain respects, based on Putnam's work and as a sociologist, that we actually are seeing people get closer together in some respects because you cannot see that person. I've not seen my mother who lives in New York for the last nine months. And so I've had to think of different ways to connect And I'm actually connecting with her more because these kinds of means are actually more affordable than me drive or more accessible than driving four hours for a visit for a weekend. And so, again, I think for the other two scholars on this event, I think that's also an interesting thing we need to look at. Right. In terms of what this also did to remind people, particularly employers, that we do have other lives that get in the way that, you know, again, based on the traditional structure of work, have not been highlighted, Brent, to your point and have created less cohesion within communities and families as a result. Fantastic. Thanks. Christos, one of the big questions that I have about the distributed workforce is around innovation. And I know that in my own work life, when I'm in a building with my team of people or the other scholars, there's a tremendous amount of business that gets transacted kind of on the fly. It's the quick conversation. It's let me, let me ask you about this. That loss of spontaneity really seems to me to be one of the big losses. And it's not easily bridged or maybe not bridged at all by the technology tools that we have, you know, in terms of fostering that kind of rapid 
exchange of ideas and information that drives, I think, drives the innovation, the process of innovation. Have you thought about that issue? What do you make of it? Yeah, definitely. I'll probably cross-apply some of what Laurel mentioned and just start there that there's a lot of remote work arrangements in the marketplace that are not not the best manifestations of what remote work should look like and that there are tools out there that help. But I think your point is that even after you do things right, that there's still some things that technology just is not a perfect substitute for. And that's where I think hybrid work arrangements are probably a good thing because this is Nicole was mentioning, people save a lot of time by not having to commute into work. And I mean, in DC, you can like go three miles and you spend like 30 something minutes. So you can save a lot of time by only going in maybe like once a week or twice a week and then having very tactical meetings on those days. And then you split up the work such that on the other two or three days, you're really doing kind of that deep work that Cal Newport talks about. So number one is just what techniques can organizations adapt to to kind of like split up and not just do a fully online, fully virtual versus fully in person. The second thing comes down to what are the tasks that organization needs to successfully complete in order to deliver value to their consumer. And so every organization is going to have different required tasks. My parents run a Greek restaurant in Phoenix, Arizona. And so the task of cooking food is going to be very different than the task of writing a research paper. And so I think organizations, and this is something that I'm working with Gallup over, is like these kind of human capital inventories. Every organization needs to understand what human capital do we need in order to make our customer overjoyed. And so to delve a little bit deeper into this, think about a task that like Brent, when you're talking with a a collaborator, a co-author with Matt, it might be easier to, to do that in person just because you don't want to like I mean, Slack is is great, but like Slack can sometimes be a little bit annoying where you just get notifications and you're like, you want to work, but then you're getting notifications and yes, you can turn them off, but then some so it, it's not perfect. But being in person together and just having that ability to share a lunch or something like that is a different experience versus and, and that's a very collaborative thing of like working on a paper versus something else that is like writing code. And so The beautiful thing in a lot of the work that we do is it requires both. It's not one or the other. And so I think organizations just need to better understand what human capital do they need. And a lot of organizations have gotten by over the years without taking those inventories. I think Laurel mentioned something earlier. It's just that this has revealed a lot of things that we haven't done maybe personally or organizations haven't done. I think it's coming time where organizations can't kick the can down the road that much longer without doing such an inventory, without kind of looking in the mirror and saying, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And taking an honest evaluation at it. So with that, I'll turn it back to anyone else that wants to chime in. You piqued my interest on something that I'm sitting here and I was like, wow, what you said was so powerful. You know, in many respects too, when you talked about, you know, when you at the workplace, you actually get to speak to the person there. I also find because we're also in this space where many of these meetings are, are conducted via video, that it actually has done some democratization, though, of the airtime that is actually in meeting. I have found that to be the case because you can see everybody's face. And you as the person, if you've ever noticed being on a Zoom meeting versus an event, there is the shared airtime that people get to actually participate. And there is also this cadence that comes because of people's fear of talking over each other or talking too much of the person who is putting the meeting together, checking in to make sure everyone has said something. I have actually found that to be really interesting. I've been on several meetings where in person, it would have been the same person speaking over and over again, taking up their time. 
in the office, there will be people who will be omitted from the dialogue because they're not the normal go-to. But that's one area that I would suggest to all of us that we think about as well, you know, the extent to which we're also learning something about the democratization of our input and the extent to which that democratization, because we're online, because we have to speak to each other, because more people are opting for video versus conference call, that you're sort of placed on the spot (laughs) to make sure people have participated because you can see everybody, which I think is very interesting if you put that in the, you know, in the office. It goes back to what Laurel said, where do people hide? Sometimes people hide because they know even if they go into that meeting, they're not going to be heard, right? And sometimes people hide proactively and sometimes people are hidden because they're not the normal suspects to be able to collaborate with. So I just wanted to put that out there because I think, you know, the whole report's basis of there's so much more work to be done. That could also be interesting, not necessarily in a job that may be more manufacturing-based or blue-collar-based. But I do think in areas we have the most problems with productivity and diversity, it is interesting to see how that actually plays out via these new media. I think that this is absolutely accurate and circles back to what we were talking about before. Like you were saying, Nicole, you know, I'm feeling more connected to people than I was before, even though I'm in less proximity because of this, like in distributed companies that everybody has now experienced throughout our society is when all of the conveniences stripped away, we're left with this feeling of what is absolutely necessary to preserve. So, you know, Brent, those hallway interactions that you're talking about of just spontaneously bumping into each other and developing a great idea. Okay, we don't have access to that experience, but what is at the core of that that is absolutely necessary to preserve? And that is a great conversation between two people that feel very aligned and think very creatively together. Is that possible to replicate? Absolutely. Do we replicate it in remote work? Absolutely. Multiple times a day, I ping my my coworkers and say, hey, can I just have like 15 minutes? I just need to talk through something with somebody else, right? And we get on a Zoom and I'm sharing my screen and I'm like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. Give me some feedback. Or just talking it out together in a synchronous way, that helps so much. So yes, we still have access to that innovation. Yes, we still have access to organizational culture. Yes, we still have access to design thinking and inspiration and interpersonal relationships. They just exist in a different way because we have to, just like we're doing socially, have to strip it back to what is absolutely necessary to preserve and start to enforce that and activate it in a different way than we're used to. This is very challenging to me because I'm a stodgy old man now, but because I really... To me, there's just something irreplaceable about in-person contact. And I need to look into the science of this, but you know, 90% of our communication, of course, is nonverbal, while 100% of our communication in this environment, or almost 100% of it, is entirely verbal. And so we only get shoulders up picture of how somebody's reacting to us. And there's just a tremendous amount of loss in that, I think. But Let me clarify that I agree with you. So even fully distributed companies that have no office space whatsoever, they still get together in person a minimum of once a year. Like it is irreplaceable. And it's been a big, big hindrance for distributed teams when they have not been able to get together in person in the past year. So 100%, yes, what we're saying is, yes, we absolutely need to have in-person contact. No questions asked. But it's when and how often. Like, do I need to be sitting in the next room to that person when I'm writing a report and they're writing a report? No. 
but do I need to be in t- together with that person when we're doing some, you know, massive road mapping and strategic planning for our team? Yes. It's just a matter of, of when. Yeah. Good distinction. I want to give Matt a chance to get in here too, since he contributed so heavily to the development of this report and has thought very deeply about it. And I'll just be very frank and say, I don't think we would have this report if Matt hadn't said, hey, we need to do this report. So Matt, what do you think after having listened to this conversation? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you everybody for the chance to speak with you all. I think this is really interesting because Brent and I have been in kind of our own little silo thinking about this ourselves. And you know, I've only been in the workforce for about four years or so. And three of those years have been spent remotely. And I love it. And I think I'm, you know, I'm a researcher, so I can say it's very productive for me. And I've come to master the brainstorming over virtual channels better over the course of time. I do think I agree with Brent that doing it in person is is hard to replace, but it gets better over time. But I think the one thing that really intrigued me about wanting to do this was particularly about our relationship with employers and our relationship with the 40-hour work week. You know, in particular, I have always questioned why exactly is it 40 hours that we have to work in a week? And you know, maybe for a researcher, that's easier to say than someone who's maybe a customer service rep. I'd just love to hear really quickly, though, anybody who has thoughts on this, like how this remote work evolution changes our relationship with things like the 40-hour work week. It changes our relationship with our employers who are no longer over our shoulder necessarily. Would just love to hear a last-minute thought on that idea. So I would think it's interesting to your point. I do think that it does sort of substantiate, well, why do we need a 48-hour week? But I think what you heard from all of us is if we're not going to do a 40-hour week, we don't need an 80-hour week. <laughs> and that's sort of what remote work becomes if you don't have values or structure or norms around what is accessible. I mean, at Brookings, the norm is usually at six o'clock, nobody's in the office physically. Now we're seeing people work on the weekends and work through the evening. And I think it goes back to this whole productivity idea. When are your employees most productive? How much time are they putting in? Can you measure that? And honestly, I want to put it out there as a person who deals with technology. We're not completely divorced from our employers. There are unfortunately some employers that still use your laptop that is employee owned to surveil your time. You know, how much time you're on there. And there's still people that still spend a lot of time saying, you know, I need to take a lunch break, but I need to stay logged in for whatever reason. Government, federal government sort of started this. And I think we're going to see that go into the private sector even more that your log on time is sort of going to quantify your hours. But I do think that I think at the end of the day, a 40 hour work week is just as, you know, who knows what the, the rationales of these do around it. The key thing for companies should be productivity, but productivity that makes sense for everybody. And that's something I've shared at Brookings. Like we cannot, as a company, say we want everybody to work remotely and not have the values espoused from executive leadership on what does that mean so that we actually have a balanced community and one that you know ranks as a place where people want to work because they feel that they have some control over their personal lives in the midst of their work lives. So I think that's going to be, I mean, Laura, I don't know about you, but I think that's going to be the question for a lot of employers who are considering like, hey, this works really well. We, we saved a lot of money. We didn't have this. What are the values that are core to productivity versus what are the values that are just getting people like Matt set on the clock? Laurel? Anything, any final ideas that you wanted to make sure got across to the audience? You know, I think, you know, most of it I've said my piece. To respond to your question, Matt, I think what we see operationally and, and infrastructurally is that in fully distributed teams, there is a much, much higher rate of hours not being tracked because what we're measuring more than time are results. And so the activity and time spent on the activity is less important than 
did it get done by the deadline period? Great. And it's up to you to self-manage and enforce those boundaries. We enforce the boundaries of, you know, daily schedules as a company, but it's up to you to, you know, control your ebb and flow of, of energy in order to meet that deadline and to set the appropriate benchmarks. So in that circumstance, there's a lot of people that choose to work a lot faster and have a lot shorter hour work weeks. What it also does is opens the door for neurodiversity. People that work at a slower pace can also achieve higher levels of promotions and as well as more complex work, knowing that they have the time that they need to perform at the speed that they need. So that's exciting to watch. Not that we're, you know, forcing people into 80 hour work weeks, but it is an accommodating factor that is exciting to watch and and enforce with boundaries. So I think with all of this, it's just important to see and understand that this is an opportunity. A lot of people are feeling very, very constrained. This was an unexpected change and it's been very overwhelming and very, very frustrating for us individually, socially, and organizationally. However, if we can break ourselves out of this mindset of this is happening to me and really switch that into an opportunistic mindset and think, what can we change? What can we achieve? If we stop feeling trapped in the way that we used to be, like, are there changes that we can make that will really enhance different elements of our organization? Then it can really become something exciting and special. Christos, last word for you. Yeah, well, I mean, amen to that. I echo all of that. And just to elaborate a tiny bit more is that there are all these tools that technology makes available to us. And it's, I mean, it puts some more responsibility on us. And just to look at the fact that you can learn almost anything by, I mean, you can go on YouTube. There's plenty of companies, DataCamp, Coursera, edX, et cetera, et cetera, that you can get knowledge at scale for very low prices. And that's injecting more competition into higher education, honestly, is that it's not just the Harvards, it's also these EdTech companies. And so it's I think it's this call to action of really don't forget that while we are in a pretty big trial as a country, as a world, there's also a lot of opportunities available. And just to always be thinking every day, reflecting like, what did I do well? Did I use my time well? What do I want to change tomorrow? And that's something that, I mean, regardless of whether we're in a pandemic or not, we should all be doing, but especially now with the tools that we have. That is such a great word to end on. I mean, I think that for those of us who have been thrust into this remote work environment, I think that one of the take-homes is that it has allowed us to assume greater ownership of what we do rather than deferring to in-person hierarchies that can control more and influence more. It's like, I'm the only one who can make my job happen. And I've got to be really smart about how I do that. And in the long term, that is such a good thing for the economy. It's such a good thing for individuals as they assume that ownership, that agency as it relates to their own work. So I want to thank Laurel and Nicole and Christos for their time this morning. You've all just made great and insightful contributions. I am so excited about this topic. I think we've got a lot to learn. And just figuring out what we have learned over the last uh, nine months, I think is a worthy enterprise for all of us to be engaged in. So again, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.